But yeah, you you said that they uh, skip over a lot of tedious nautical vocab. There is so much of it in this book. Yeah. yeah so we've that's how we pass the savings on to you. Yeah, but not talking about the ship's your, or is that a plane that yours? I think it's a ship. And then planes took all their terminology from ships. You can quote me on that. Yeah. I'm a dandy aviatrix. I know what I'm talking about. So you feminize a- aviator, but not dandy. I'm see. I'm queering the role of okay, the aviatrix. Cool. reading that. Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Toad of Toad Hall over here is Daniel. Uh, oh... Bugs Bunny? <laughs> is Abby? Who's the, who's the American equivalent of Toad and Toad Hall? I think it's the WB Frog. I fucking hate Wind of the Willows, can I just say. Right, so would you like to read some of our letters? This is from First Name David. Hi both. I've just listened to your episode on A Christmas Carol. And let me just say that this was sent on December the 7th, 2022, so that's within my acceptable period of listening to the A Christmas Carol episode. <laughs> So good for you, David. And I really enjoyed it. That's good, because you would enjoy it at Christmas, not at any other time of year. Jesus Christ. Uh, however, I was disappointed not to hear what Bob's salary would be in today's money. Could you enlighten us? Um, not off the top of my head, but I will say that the Measuring Worth blog, there's a very good article about the purchasing power of a uh, bookkeeper building off the Bob Cratchit thing. So have a look there. Also, way back in your episode on Dracula, you ask why the gang didn't let the Count go back to Transylvania and leave them in peace. I think we thought that, like, Dracula, once he leaves England, what's the problem? Just leave him alone. Well, David says, I seem to remember it was because Mina was slowly transitioning into a vampire, and they had to kill the Count before the transition was complete. Well, you're an idiot, then. You could have had a hot vampire wife, Jonathan Harker. Okay. Lastly, and this is something I think we can all get on board with, there's actually a Clark theme running through this, I've noticed. We've had Bob, then we've gone on to the Harkers, now we're on to... Lastly, can I suggest The Diary of a Nobody for one of your future episodes? I bloody love that book. That book uh, is hilarious. I haven't read it in years, but I would love to cover that. But we, I don't think we could do it justice because it's already funny. Finally, one from Enrico. Ooh. Yes. A letter from Enrico. I discovered your podcast after your guest appearance on Betwixt the Sheets. Man, we're going to be spend, dining out on that yeah, for years. Dividends. And now I can't get through my work days without it. Well, you're going to have to, friend. We only have so many episodes. Might be very underemployed. Um, <laughs> you guys make me laugh so much. Aw. Please never stop. Cheers from down under. So I should oh. have done, done a voice there. <laughs> do, you wanna, do you wanna try again? You guys make me laugh. <laughs> no, no, no. Here at Aston University, we have a couple of English programs, which if you ever want to be taught by Daniel and I, I think you would really enjoy. Please sign up. We have an undergrad English program and a brand new shiny, sparkly master's program that we are launching in September of this year, 2023. So please do apply to study here and Daniel and I will keep these shenanigans going through your whole degree. So Daniel, what is our text today? Well, 
If you've just tuned in, then my current Castaways music choices have been the folk song John Barleycorn, because you know <laughs> you, you very movingly talked about your love of barley. <laughs> I heard it through the grapevine by Marvin Gaye, because <laughs> you, you you really talked very movingly about your affection for raisins. Goat by the noted rapper Diego Money. Psalms 50 and 27. Both of those reflected a moment that made a big impact on your life. And uh, Man Eater <laughs> by Nelly Furtado. For, I think I would say, ambiguous reasons. Um, Telemann's Gulliver's Travel Suite. Because, you know, who would have thought it? You can take a joke. And lastly, Friday by Rebecca Black, just because it's a really great song. Um, so your luxury is a shipwreck filled with um, virtually anything you might need. You've also got the Bible, naturally. But you're swapping the complete works of Shakespeare for the complete works of John Locke. But what third and final book will you pick, Mr. Robinson Crusoe? That was weirdly adorable. I was so nervous when you said you had a lot of research to do for this. So it goes without saying, we're about to spoil this book for you. In terms of the sort of content, uh, we'll be dealing with shipwrecks, cannibalism, a lot of racism, and there is quite a bit of violence towards animals. Would you like to do some background, friend? Yeah. We did cover Mole Flanders in Series 2, and that we discussed Defoe's quite exciting life there. You know, and I think that probably would have given Mole a run for our money, wouldn't it? So that contrasts to Defoe's first big hit, 1719's Robinson Crusoe, which is really all just about a man reconciling himself to his own solitude on a desert island. And there's a lot of sort of very detailed focus on tedious tasks. So I was kind of thinking, like, what does that have in common with Defoe's life? Because he, as we talked about in the Mole Flanders one, mm -hmm. he was like a spy, soldier. Economist. Economist, yeah, he did all sorts of crazy stuff. But I was thinking there are parallels. First, like Crusoe, Defoe was a kind of in interested in sort of industry and improvement, and he wrote a lot of works about, like non-fiction works about schemes to do with like the economy and stuff, as you said. Like Crusoe, Defoe was a moralist, and he like pamphleteered throughout his life about contemporary issues, respect for elders, sexual licentiousness, stuff like that. I don't know if he was pro or anti, then, <laughs> but whatever. He was a travel writer too, so Crusoe surveys his island, and so too did Defoe, after Crusoe, write a tour through the whole island of Great Britain. There's a parallel there. In fact, in the Mole Flanders one, I made a joke about Defoe being trapped on an island and that island was Britain. I've been beaten to it. Somebody <laughs> wrote a parody in the, in the 1720s of Robinson Crusoe about a guy called Defoe trapped on an island. It was Great Britain. So That's really funny. I didn't know he was a travel writer. Yep. We chose this book because it's one of those big classics that everyone knows the name of, but nobody really knows what it's about or has gotten to you know read it on your own. I've read this three times and it gets worse and worse every time. This book made me want to spit nails and die. So I'm going to need you all to be very appreciative that I read this for a third goddamn time. I need you to garland me with your praise and adulation. This was actually the first time I read it all the way through, embarrassingly. Mm -hmm. uh, That's not embarrassing. That is incredibly understandable. Well, because I, I did read it start reading it for my undergraduate degree and was like, this is so boring, and stopped. Robinson Crusoe is sometimes held to be the first novel in the English language. We've discussed this elsewhere, haven't we? There are loads of other potential candidates. Margaret Cavendish's The Blazing World, 1666. John Bunyan's A Pilgrim's Progress, 1678. Afra Ben, Orinoco, 1688. Pamela by Samuel Richardson. Some people think that's the first English novel. You know, and also like there are these non-English language contenders from earlier on. So Don Quixote by Cervantes, 1605 to 15. Rabelais, Gargantua and Pantagruel from the 16th century. Lots of good fart jokes and stuff. The Tale of Genji, which was recommended by a listener, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, you've read it, haven't you? Uh, 11th yeah. century Japanese novel. There's a handful of works that are sometimes called novels from ancient Greece that were written in the kind of the first century AD around then. 
But I think the, the, the important thing is it doesn't really matter who came first. There's no sort of like the original novel from which all the others sprang. But I think it, this does show us that genres have a history of their own. They, you know, they, they, they come from somewhere. They're, they're not eternal and they change and they sometimes decline over time. And I, I kind of thought that Robinson Crusoe is, is a good candidate for first ever novel because a key feature of the novel is its kind of willingness to experiment with form and to shift between styles. So, but I think a novel is very conspicuously free to do what it likes and that's what Robinson's a bit like on his island. Yeah, so if you think about more classic poetry, we're not yeah. talking about like, you know, free verse poetry. Yeah, we're not like Frank O'Hara. We're talking like like Shakespeare, or something. Yeah, Shakespeare's yeah. sonnets and things. They had very specific rules, and if you didn't adhere to all of them, then this wasn't a poem, it was nothing. Yeah. The same with plays, like you had to follow very strict rules. So things were a lot stricter, and then the novel came along, and in part, yeah, as we'll see with this, it's great because like there are no rules and you can do anything, but also that means there's no structure. He's a little bit, you know, operating blindly. He already gets, I think, so much better by the time he gets to Maul Flanders three years later. Mm. I think that book is loads better structurally. Yeah, it's tighter, but I think Robinson Crusoe is more, it's like visibly more experimental, which I like. But anyway, the first rule of the novel, there are no rules. Why are you pointing at me? I don't know. <laughs> my copy of, I'm just going to say also, my copy of Robinson Crusoe, I got it from uh, Reeds of Liverpool, uh, okay. second hand bookshop. The pages are full of sand. Oh! Well, they were, They've, I've brushed it out now, but what's that? Is that a gimmick? You don't realize this yet, but you are starring in some crappy tween adventure story. I opened the book and there was sand in there all along and transported to a like new world. Like the page master. Yeah. Am I in the page master? You're in the page. That's, yeah. yeah, that's the reference I was looking for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when this opens, Defoe tells us that this is a true account of, you know, a man who was shipwrecked and he's the mere editor. That's all bollocks. Defoe wrote this. He, he based it on a man who did get shipwrecked for a long time, Alexander Selkirk, but this is not based on any of his, like, true memoirs. It's only loosely based on Selkirk's true story. So we begin the story, ostensibly from this quote-unquote real person, Crusoe. He is born in 1632 to an English mother and an immigrant dad, and they live in Yorkshire. Crusoe toys with the idea of being a sailor. His dad is like... If you're a sailor, your life goes in two directions. Abject misery or incredible riches. You don't want either. He's like, you're better off staying in the middle state, or what might be called the upper station of low life, which by long experience has been found to be the best state in the world. The most suited to human happiness, not exposed to the miseries, hardships, labor, and sufferings of the mechanic part of mankind, the working classes, and not embarrassed with the pride, luxury, ambition, and envy of the upper part of mankind. Yeah, so, who would want that? No, yeah, God, that's crazy. But that's that's the life in the UK test, isn't it? I think that's what Carl <laughs> had to. You know this. That it's like, what's really, really good? Uh, being being rich, being poor, being middle class, and you have to tick that one, and that's how you become an English citizen. Crusoe's a bit like, you know what, Dad? I'm unfazed by your incessant hen peckery. I don't need this, I do what I want. I'm probably 13 and a half years old, I'm a man. Yeah, so yeah, like all the young people, Crusoe, he likes to spend what he calls his casual time in Hull. It's pretty cash. Yeah, it's just a cool place. Go to the Philip Larkin <laughs> Centre, I don't know what they got up there. One day in Hull, he runs into a friend who's going on his dad's ship to London and he invites Robinson along. This is very much do you want to ride in my dad's like convertible Mustang energy. You want to ride in my yeah. dad's stang? Just coming up with your, your arm on the <laughs> bowsprit of the ship. <laughs> yeah. 
So yeah, Robinson's like, yes please. No sooner has the ship left the Humber than it's hit by a storm. And I thought this was quite a good bit. I expected every wave would have swallowed us up and that every time the ship fell down, as I thought in the trough or the hollow of the sea, we would never rise more. So Robinson's very upset, he remonstrates against his foolishness, he prays and he vows never to sail again. But then when the storm abates, he's just like, yeah, actually I like being on a boat and he has a few bevies, which is apparently what sailors do to get over trauma. So he keeps going on this ship, which then runs into another storm and sinks off of Great Yarmouth in Norfolk. Meanwhile, his parents are like... Missing his tea. He's supposed to be home for his tea. Can you imagine getting that call? Like, your son is down in Great Yarmouth, sir. Yeah. Can you collect him? <laughs> sure, I'm from the Great Yarmouth uh, precinct. Uh, your boy's not in pretty state. Yeah. The crew, they, they survive, they get to shore, and Robinson tells us, this is when I should have given up saying and gone home. And a sailor says the same to him at the time. He's like, being a sailor is my calling, but God doesn't want you to be one. You're a bit like Jonah. That's why the ship sank, because you're like, you shouldn't be here, Robinson. And Robinson's obsessed with fate, having forced him into a situation. So one sea voyage drowning narrowly averted, Crusoe instantly goes on another. He, he has not learned his lesson at all. But this time he's on a ship bound for the west coast of Africa. And this one actually turns out okay. He brings home a ton of gold dust, um, and this book is all- That stuff is like gold dust. It's worth its weight in gold yeah, dust. Yeah, whatever, yeah, carry You're on. jerk. <laughs> so this book is already really concerned with prices and markets and consumer goods, and that's even, even though he's going to be shipwrecked on an island, spoilers, that's going to continue. This one success convinces him to keep going on voyages. He decides to do a gold run in Africa again, and the ship is immediately taken over by Turkish pirates. So Crusoe quickly goes from being, quote, a merchant to a miserable slave. Oh, no, let's have the battle, though. The bit with the Barbary Corsairs is good. Broadsides. The pirates all get on board Robinson's ships and, quote, they immediately fell to cutting and hacking the decks and rigging. We plied them with small shot, half pikes, powder chests and such like. But it wasn't enough. I love all that talking about arquebuses and crap like muskets and things. You are such a boy. I love all the boy stuff. You know what the word for those things is that you throw on decks that spike people's feet? You know, those little jacks, those like serrated... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A caltrop. Ooh. So yeah, he's a slave in Morocco. So after two years as a slave, Crusoe is finally trusted enough by his pirate owner to go fishing all by himself with just a couple more enslaved people. A man named Ismail and a boy named Zuri. So Crusoe immediately tricks Ismail into helping him stockpile all these goods so they can make their escape. Um, he's like... Well, it's only an afternoon of fishing, but yeah, I guess we need all these Lunchables. Um, so when they're out on the boat, he throws Ismail overboard, and Ismail finally at this moment twigs what's going on, and he's like, hey, take me with you. And Crusoe's like, nah, I'm a lone wolf. I will shoot you in the head if you come near me. You're a pretty good swimmer. Hope you can make it back to shore. God bless. So he's just left on the boat with the little boy, Zuri, and he's like, mm, I could drown this kid, but I do need another pair of hands to help me steer the boat. The back rubs. Foot rubs. Don't, don't get weird with it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and the boy is a lot easier to overpower than Ismail, so I guess Zuri can come with. He can be the short round of this adventure, and that's how Crusoe and Zuri escape slavery. They ha I'm going to really bottom line this for you guys. They have some adventures on the boat. They go around the coast of Africa. They see a mysterious animal in the water, which I think is a hippo. I was trying to figure out what animal this was. 
And then later they shoot a lion who was just minding its own business, and Defoe gets really, like, animal tortury about how pleased Crusoe is to break the lion's leg with a shot, and then when the lion's, like, at the, you know, crux of its suffering, he shoots it through the head. You know, it's, it's really gross. Um, Crusoe's like, hey, I'm just your average dude who saw an animal existing and decided not on my f***ing watch. He's the ancestor of all those, like, weird American dentists. Who go over there and poach. Yeah, who go on shooting holidays. Why is it always the dentist? Uh, they're sadistic people. Maybe it's that whole, um, you spend your day looking into people's mouths, and you're like, I need a bigger challenge. They're doing that lion tamer, putting my head in the lion's mouth. So, face. ringmasters go on holiday, they go to dentist's offices. Yeah. Okay. So, Robinson and Zuri head to the European shipping lanes and are rescued by a Portuguese ship with a very friendly captain. And I think it should be noted that all the men of the book throw themselves at Robinson. Queer reading. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm not giving it my sound effect because slavers don't get my sound effect. Hey. No, no, f*** you. Of course Plus you get the sound effect. You can be a gay slaver. It's I'm, called intersectionality. <laughs> Right. The ship is headed for Brazil, where the captain tells Robinson that he can sell all of the animal skins and stuff that he acquired on the African coast. So, you know, that will you know start a new life for him. And he's like, also, you know, by, by the by, the captain's like, what, what do you say to 60 pieces of eight for the boy? Zuri. So the, the captain wants to buy Zuri. And Robinson says... Double I Judas? Does he say double Judas? Because he's... I, I, had a, I had a religious reading that he's doing twice as many of the 30 pieces of Ooh. silver. Which, and, oh yeah, because eight is silver, isn't it? Yeah. I'm just really trying to shoehorn this in. No, I like that, because there are lots of biblical references in this. That's good, yeah. No, you're obviously right, yeah. That's like calling somebody a triple Hitler. Uh, so, Robinson's like, I was loath to take the money, because, you know, I don't want to sell Zuri into slavery, because we've been through loads together. And then the captain's like, here's a compromise. <laughs> Why doesn't Zuri be an indentured servant for ten years, and after that, he can go free if he converts to Christianity? Yeah, I just see a flashing neon light that's like, deals, 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 deals. <laughs> it is like that, yeah. They arrive in Brazil. Robinson gets into the sugar business. He becomes quite successful. He and the captain, they're still friends. They're like bosom pals, and they work together on various business schemes. So everything's going quite well for Robinson in Brazil. Do you think when the the captain would come to uh, the plantation, he'd be like, do you have some sugar for daddy? Yeah, very good. After a few years, Crusoe starts lamenting parting with Zuri. And I'm like, oh, that's pretty sweet. No, it's not. It's because he could really use the help and Zuri was a good worker. So on September 1st, 1659, at what Robinson later on, like, you know, he's, he's narrating this from many years in the future. He, he says that this was, quote, an evil hour. Um, evil Nothing evil about just a normal slave mission? No, no, no. It's evil for him. Yes. Yeah. He decides to lead a voyage to Africa to get some enslaved people. The ship hits various obstacles or sort of freak weather events until he then drives their dumbass straight into a hurricane. And then the ship drives into a second hurricane. Like buses, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> and then eventually the ship runs aground on a shoal or a reef or something. So after all of this, there, there are only 11 people left on the ship. Those 11 people jump on a lifeboat as the ship is sinking. The waves are too high. The lifeboat capsizes, killing everyone except Crusoe, who then washes ashore on an unknown island. Population, you're racist ass. <laughs> He's very happy you know, deliriously happy to have survived the shipwreck. But what of his crewmates? He looks around for them on the beach but can't find any sign of them, except for three of their hats, one cap, and two shoes that were not fellows. 
I love that. He does occasionally have a very charming turn of yeah, phrase. Really, yeah. So Crusoe takes stock of his situation. He's completely soaking wet. He has no clothes, nothing to eat. He'll probably be eaten by wild beasts come nightfall. He's obsessed with wild beasts, isn't he? And he's like, uh, I soon found my comforts a bit, and that, in a word, I had a dreadful deliverance. So, you know, you think you're lucky, you're out of the frying pan, buddy. Okay, so Crusoe goes through some really weird stages of grief, as you would, as he sort of assesses his situation. And that ultimately culminates in him taking action. The action being, I'm going to swim back to the sunken ship and get, among other things, liquor and a bunch of gold coins. Sir, I ask you, Daniel, God damn it! So, in fairness, he does go back to find other supplies on the ship. Bread, rice, three Dutch cheeses, five pieces of dried goat's flesh, a little remainder of European corn, originally intended for the ship's chickens, sadly deceased, barley and wheat, cordial waters, I don't know what that is, some kind of like fruit juice or squash, something. Squash, I think, yeah. <laughs> Lots of squash for the sailors. Five or six <laughs> gallons of rack, which is a palm or coconut liquor, clothes and tools, guns, powder horns, and a small bag of shot and some swords. Pretty cool shop, I think. I mean, we do get, like, lists and lists and lists of stuff in this. A lot like uh, Maul Flanders, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very acquisitive. He's very concerned with material objects. I mean, I think Defoe is the only man I know who could masturbate to a grocery list. Um, yes, probably. Uh... Why do you look so shady (laughs) right (laughs) now? Name three Dutch cheeses. No. Shant. Okay, so he, yeah, he gets all this stuff, but he does make a point of specifically going back to get all the gold he can carry. Like, that's going to do him any damn good on an isolated island. Mm. Quote, I smiled to myself at the sight of this money. What art thou good for? One of those knives is worth all this heap. I have no manner of use for thee. However, upon second thoughts, I took it away. Hey, you so, never know, do you? Never know when you might need that. He scouts around the island for the best, safest possible spot to build a shelter, which... In the too-long-didn't-read version, turns out it's a hill with a cave on it. So we get a very laborious thought process on how to pick the best spot to live, and then once he finds it, a very laborious description about how he made his shelter, and then a very laborious description about how he brought all the stuff he rescued from the ship to this new shelter, Mm. and then a really long description about how he built a shelf. He's obsessed with the shelf stuff. Shelf-obsessed? I bet those are really shitty shelves, too. I mean, those shelves are stuck up with chewing gum. Robinson's infinite labours, quote-unquote, aren't enough to distract him from mulling over his situation, and he does that a lot. If you thought it was all just like him digging gullies, it's not. There's a lot of thinking as well. (laughs) There's a lot of this weighing up the meaning of his situation and whether it's good or bad. Oh, my God, this is like a Terrence Malick film. Edit! He even has this bit where he does these, like, like sort of debtor and creditor columns like oh everyone's dead that's bad but i'm alive that's good you know what makes for really compelling reading an accountancy ledger yeah you know robinson he's found pens and papers on the ship he starts writing about his situation so we get we kind of move into this epistolary bit don't we where it sort of turns into a diary starting with this debtor and creditor columns explain to us what that term is daniel so debtor is some uh, <laughs> no i don't i don't know about bookkeeping i can't explain that epistolary novel is a it's usually a novel told in letters but i suppose mm-hmm. it's more it's more just a novel that's explicitly made up of documents 
Diary entries are also a really yeah. common one, like Bridget Jones's diary, or like if you guys watch Sex in the City at all, like most of that is narrated through her column. Yeah. Or you know, like um, The Martian with Matt Damon is told through a series of vlogs. You get this all the time. So we then get a long meditation on how he makes a table and chair. He spends a long time making a wooden shovel. He decorates his literal man cave. He captures a wild goat and begins what is ultimately going to be a very long discussion over the course of this book on goat husbandry. The greatest of all time husbandry. Yeah. <laughs> there are so many goats. We're going to need a goat klaxon, Daniel. I hate to say it. I was just going to say I love this bit where he's like, I'd never handled a tool in my life, but... As reason is the substance and original of the mathematics, so by stating and squaring everything by reason and making the most rational judgment of things, every man may in time be the master of every mechanical art. He's just like, I just thought myself in doing really good at <laughs> making chairs. I think mean, there's more to it than that, personally. I don't know, but... <laughs> My dude is just manifesting his way through carpentry school. That's... This is, this is the bit where it's really just like Minecraft, isn't it? it? Also, we should probably note that these things are not sequential. We're telling a lot of this kind of out of order because he talks about all of these projects in a really muddled way. Yeah, and, he tells them out of order. And it's quite meandering, and like these projects go on for a really long time, so he, he keeps coming back to a series of ongoing projects. So we're just sort of shorthanding this yeah. for you guys. So, yeah, we get this great bit. A miracle. A miracle? A miracle happens. He was rescued? No, even better. I saw some few stalks of something green shooting out of the ground, which I fancied might be some plant I had not seen, but I was surprised. I'm perfectly astonished when, after a little longer time, he's watching the grass grow here, <laughs> I, I saw about 10 or 12 ears come out, in the non-physiological sense, at, which were perfect green barley, of the same kind as our European, nay, as our English barley. So if I were to say I'd rather go outside and watch grass grow, it's really 601. I can read about grass grow, or I can watch grass grow. Um... Interesting question about the nature of mimesis. Uh, <laughs> that said, as long as it's English grass, I don't give a shit, you know. Good British, British produce for British bigots, please. <laughs> this book is dead inside. It's but so am I. This moment is a bit of a sea change in Robinson's outlook. This is another big theme in the text, isn't it? I had hitherto acted upon no religious foundation at all. Indeed, I had very few notions of religion in my head, or had entertained any sense of anything that had befallen me otherwise as chance. But once he sees the barley, so often the way, you see a bit of barley, <laughs> it sort of makes him you know, change a bit, doesn't it? He wonders, is God really looking out for me after all? So he saves the barley, and he's going to harvest it to make bread. Watch this space. How empty must your life be that you see a bit of barley and that makes you believe in God? English barley. Oh, oh, God, yeah, of, yeah, course, on, yeah. of course, sorry. I know we're supposed to feel sort of sad and worried for this guy, but I'm the real victim here. I was a bit jealous. You, you were jealous? Yeah, when he's like talking, this, we didn't even talk about this, but there's a bit where he talks about digging a gully for his raft, and I just thought, that's crazy. That's so amazing. Daniel, you can go outside and dig a hole today, friend. It's not the same. <laughs> So, things are going okay, he's, you know, seen the face of God in 
some barley. Then there's a terrible earthquake that really messes up his little cave shelter thing. And his thing about thinking God likes him. Yeah, <laughs> and his self-esteem. Mm. And he's he's worried that all of his stuff is going to get sort of buried in a landslide or something. So he's like, I need to build a better shelter. Um, I think I can get spare lumber and parts from the ship. And then he spends an age recounting how one day he got a beam from here and another day he got an iron bolt from there. Thrills and spills, Daniel. He manages one day to kill a turtle and he enjoys the most delicious meal that he's had in months. But that turtle has its revenge because Crusoe gets dangerously ill with like, I'm not really sure, it's like a fever or the shits or something. Um, and after days and days of this, he cries out to God to spare him and has this terrible dream. I saw a man descend from a great black cloud in a bright flame of fire. His countenance was the most inexpressibly dreadful, mm. impossible for words to describe. You look dreadful. <laughs> <laughs> when he stepped on the ground with his feet, I thought the earth trembled, just as it had done before in the earthquake. He was no sooner landed upon the earth, but he moved forward towards me with a long spear or weapon in his hand to kill me. Whoa. Find the phallus? Yep. I heard a voice so terrible that it is impossible to express the terror of it. Seeing all these things have not brought thee to repentance, so thou shalt die. At which words I thought he lifted up the spear that was in his hand to kill me. Mm. So, um, this is not the good acid. I have that same dream every night. That explains yeah. so much. And, and then he wakes up and he's fine. He's recovered. I think he accidentally got one of Nicolas Cage's night terrors. I think this is really weird imagery, though. This is God almost as Satan, or God as a sort of more primordial yeah, force. pagan or something. Pagan deity. Yeah. yeah, I just thought, what a weird portrayal of God. But now he kind of gives up on doing a diary and starts to shift to a sort of moral treatise. Oh, good. And he starts wondering, like, oh, is all this punishment for me disobeying my dad? I began to reproach myself with my past life, in which I had so evidently, by uncommon wickedness, Provoke the justice of God to lay me under uncommon strokes. He gets real, like, born again christian yeah. Oh, right? yeah. Oh, lordy. But the, the thing that annoyed me is he thinks all of the sort of stuff that you would think about God and religion and your place in the universe when you were, like, 13. I was just sitting there, like, hate whispering, you're basic. As he will later admit, he's no theologian. But yeah, that's, that's for sure. Yeah. Fortunately, he's found all these sort of Bibles and popish books and stuff on his ship, so he starts studying them. He also has some tobacco-infused rum to get over his illness. That sounds pretty good. Yeah, we should try that. That sounds won't make us puke at all. Sort of thing I would quite like. Tobacco-infused rum. You want your nice rum to taste like... Well, Second-hand like smoke. Shitty, <laughs> yeah, shitty cigarettes. I'd more likely to do the other way around and dunk a cigar in some rum. Listeners, maybe <laughs> here's a little bit of homework for everybody. Do both. Put a cigarette or something in some rum and drink it. <laughs> Put a cigarette in some rum and smoke it. And tell us what's better. For the TikTok, maybe. We'll call it the Rum Tobacco Challenge. Oh, and you have to nominate. You're a trendsetter. Look yes, I am. Press on, because I'm going to fall apart. In a minute, <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So now we get into a really exciting part of the novel. Crusoe, he gets into his groove, and he's like, Are you all ready to f***ing rage? And then he experiments with growing barley. Do you all want to talk about grain growing for 20 pages? Yes. N neither do we. Oh, no. <laughs> but it happens. I don't know what you were... Yeah, <laughs> sorry. I don't know what you were doing there. He gets so good at growing barley that he eventually needs to build a barn. And then eventually a bigger barn. Yeah. 
he captures another goat and we get another huge section on animal husbandry. I don't know why this, why animal husbandry is the headline of this book. This is like a page nine story, but he leads with these fucking goats every chapter. He also really misses Zuri. But again, not because he's a human being, you know, who he shared some good times with, shared some laughs with. It's because, no, he needs a farmhand and Zuri's a good worker. Now, the island that Crusoe is on is actually a really big island, and even in all this time, he hasn't been able to explore all of it yet. So he's slowly making his way around to different bits, and he also wonders if there are any natives on any of the nearby islands that he can sort of see in the, the distance, because he, you know what? He's heard about all of these ferocious cannibals in the Amazon and the Caribbean, and wouldn't it be terrible if they were here? Foreshadowing horn. This place. In his wanderings, he also discovers that he's kind of picked the shittiest part of the island to set up shop, and he should probably relocate to the other side where there are a ton of turtles. I'm sorry, does he not remember the last time he ate a turtle and he got food poisoning so bad he saw the face of God? It's very like, you know, Donatello and Michelangelo send their regards. Exactly, yeah. He also teaches himself how to make pots of clay. They are very misshapen at first. He finds that lovely veil, the delicious veil. Uncle beans, citrus fruits. There's all kinds of nice things in the veil. Yeah, I'm also really caught up in the bit where he just randomly starts screaming with joy at Jesus, and then he learns how to make raisins. I too like raisins. Maybe not quite to the screaming at Jesus level, but you know, I, I like it when my grapes are old. He makes a canoe. I love that bit. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, I think I'll make a canoe. Digs a whole canoe like out of a, a log, and then he can't even get it to the water, so he just starts again near the water. That's a great bit. Come on, it's we've just, all been there. It's just rare that you're the expressive one who just wants to speak your truth and live your joy. I think it's a funny kind of... book, isn't it? I like it a lot. There is not, no. No, I will not. I laughed. I actually laughed at this book. Not, I know it wasn't intentional, but it's a funny book. What on earth could you find in this to laugh at? I'm oh, just full of joy. <laughs> okay, so he celebrates his fourth year on the island, and he says, quote, I had nothing to covet. I had all now that I was capable of enjoying. I was a lord of the whole manor, or if I pleased, I might call myself king or emperor over the whole country which I had the possession of. Hey. And he puts this in very weird imperialist terms. And there's that great bit within the delicious vale where he builds that little bower and he calls it his country seat. <laughs> like, when he starts like trying to really like aristocrat it up. He's cosplaying. Yeah. I feel like this was all us in lockdown where we slowly went mad and built canoes too far away from water. Yeah, it is a bit like that, isn't it? What was the craziest thing you did in lockdown? Like, you never got into the banana bread state of things. No. I kept playing Teddy Bear's Picnic on the trumpet. <laughs> Why? It's a good song. Okay. <laughs> At this point, Robinson starts running out of ink, and the diary part of the book, and the kind of moral treaties and everything that ends. But also at this time, he starts kind of more explicitly dividing his time into weeks and months, so he can start observing the Sabbath. So I thought that was quite odd. He does a lot of weird things with time scales yeah. in this. Yeah, doesn't he have like a bit of wood that he sort of notches? That yeah, he builds a sort of yeah. Like Mole Flanders. Uh, uh, no, those are her bedposts. Okay. At the same time, 
Robinson's own sense of time in telling this story, as we've already implied, is, is, is getting a bit weirder, doesn't it? So he can, he's just constantly flipping between seasons and months. Sometimes time passes really slowly, sometimes it passes very fast. So like that bower that he builds in the delicious vale, his country seat, he's just like, yeah, I just built this bower. And then like a paragraph later, he's like, I came back and there were all willows growing around it. That would take years, wouldn't yeah. it? But he's just like, oh, it was amazing. A lovely den for me. So, oh, I built my garden of Versailles. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. So I don't know what's going on there. He also knocks down a parrot with a stick and keeps it as a sort of pet slash chum. But it was some years before I could make him speak, he tells us. No, he just didn't want to talk to you. Yeah. Robinson's very proud of his development of the island. He's got all these crops and goods. Raisins, goats, various hunted birds and turtles. He's like, Leadenhall Market could not have furnished a better table than I. So he's doing pretty nicely for himself. Daniel, this book is so thrilling, I might puke pure adrenaline. Yeah, yeah. We get all this stuff. He, he makes a whole new suit. It's a good bit. Because his clothes have rotted rot off. off. Yeah. yeah. Makes an umbrella. Let's all remember that in 19th century France, umbrellas were popularly known as Robinsons in honour of Robinson Crusoe's umbrella. Well, he damn well should make an umbrella. Can you imagine how sunburnt this guy must be? I bet by this stage he looks like a melted flip-flop. Uh, do they melt? And have you have you never like gone someplace really hot and left your flip flops on the back dash? I don't wear flip flops. Oh, I am <laughs> morbidly fascinated by your feet, and not in a sex way. Oh, I assume not. <laughs> <laughs> but like you and I have been to Italy together in the summer, and you did not wear sandals. I have never seen your feet. I recently got some sandals, so play cards right. And <laughs> <laughs> Let's just have a little bit of Robinson's cool look because I really like it. I had a great hat, a shapeless cap made of goat skin, with a flap hanging down behind. A short jacket of goat skin. <laughs> the skirts coming down to about the middle of my thighs. And a pair of open knee breeches of the same. For footwear, a pair of somethings. <laughs> I scarce know what to call him. Like buskins to flap over my legs. And lace on either side, like spatter dashes. But of a most barbarous shape. He also has all these tools hanging off him. He has a gun. He has his umbrella. And his beard trimmed to a large pair of Mohammedan whiskers. Such as I had seen worn by some Turks. I love that. It's cool look that is. Robinson, by this point, he's been there for 11 years on the island. And he's expanded his operations all over the place. He calls one area his plantation. He, he also uses the term enclosure at one point. Doesn't he? Mm. So there's, it's not just colonial imagery. There's all sorts of kind of very loaded terms being used to describe his ownership of the island. He makes a pipe. He learns basket weaving. He learns hedge growing. This is reading a little bit like a community college course nice, catalogue. I like that, yeah. He decides to throw himself full throttle into goat husbandry. So <laughs> beforehand it was just like a sort of... Just a hobby. Still goat husbandry like we all do. He makes goat traps. It's all, it's all goat stuff. Wow. I was gonna suggest he be in a rock and roll band, but he's too busy leading a rock and roll life. I was wondering if he was just hallucinating everything. Because of his weird sense of time. He, I used to imagine him being like, yeah, um, I planted a whole plantation and built, you know, like, no, Robinson, you, you know, he would just kind of wake up and he's just been like living in shit and he's naked <laughs> and he's like been tearing the hind legs off goats. And that's, that's the real Robinson Crusoe. That's really dark, man. That's like, what, the last five minutes of The Descent, where it was very, all... Very similar. Very similar. That's what I'm imagining. Yeah. I mean, spoilers for a horror film from, what, ten years ago. Quote, But now I come to a new scene in my life. <gasps> okay, so this is the most famous scene in the novel. This is what we were alluding to in our clue last time. One day, Crusoe is walking on the shore, and he hasn't been there for a while. Quote, 
and I was exceedingly surprised with the print of a man's naked foot on the shore, which was very plain to be seen in the sand. I stood like one thunderstruck, or as if I had seen an apparition. I listened. I looked around me. I could hear nothing, nor see anything. I could see no other impression but that one. And I'm sitting there going, May, aren't you supposed to be Christian now? The footprint, the one set of footprints is from when Christ carried you. Mm, or popped with you. <laughs> also, yeah, that expression, Jesus on a pogo stick. Yes. There we is go. That, is that an expression? Yeah. Crusoe doesn't sleep at all that night, and he wonders if it's Satan on the island. And I was like, first of all, sir, Clovenhoof, like Daniel's feet, we've discussed this. He decides to fortify his camp with some dope walls and some tree barriers and shit. And I'm gun at, turrets, I like that bit. Yeah, he has gun turrets. I imagine it's a really sick movie montage. Because mm. we cut to two years later. Yeah, I think we're up to year 13 on the island at this point. Also, don't worry, in all that time, he didn't forget about his beloved fucking goats. I didn't want y'all to be worried that we, they weren't going to, you know, come back into the mix. They're there. So one day he's out working atop a hill, and he sees something in the distance on the island. Skulls and bones and gore all over the beach. As it turns out, a cannibal group from one of the nearby islands, as he had feared, you know, we're living there, they've come over to his big island to conduct their ritual, and they are feasting on human flesh. So, you know, we got some, we got some cannibals here. They are late to the party, but boy, are they making an entrance. So it's odd that why only now? I don't know. Yeah, thirteen oh, I years. I never in. noticed. Or had they only started coming to the island for their rituals? E- either he hadn't noticed, or like they've been going to another island, and there's some zoning laws. Mm. See, it's actually quite a radical text, isn't it? Because it's stressing that even primitive peoples like this have a history. They weren't always going to that island. Oh, actually, I like that reading. I thought you were going to join me in being shitty about this book, but actually, I like that. Yeah, they have a kind of <clears throat> surfer dude fire pit. <laughs> they, they cook the people, don't they? Hey man, Dave brought some brews, <laughs> Travis is roasting some brats, and Scott brought some sick brains. <laughs> so this is our second book in a row that has a blood orgy, and this one is so bad that Crusoe pukes, quote, <laughs> with an uncommon violence. <laughs> and then he runs back to his shelter, but not before thanking God that he was born a lovely Englishman and not some dreadful cannibal. After observing the cannibals on a few more trips, you know, he sort of scouts them out, he realizes, oh phew, they're not here to hunt, they're just doing their ritual, they have no idea that I'm on the island. So he kind of grows a little bit more comfortable living his life far away from them, and he just becomes really careful about, you know, like going down to the beach or firing his gun without- Playing his saxophone. (laughs) Without making absolutely sure that they're not there. And he does this for five more years, so we're up to year 18 on the island. You've not been practicing your scales. (laughs) Robinson had considered making beer. He's made baskets, he's made pots, bread, he's developed farmland, he's built a fortress, he made his coconut Nintendo. Beer would be on, it, be on his talents, that's too much for him. If you were on a desert island, that would be the first thing you do before water, before shelter and food. I think you can't help it. With, you'd have a bit of water, but there'd be all crap in it and that would go all fermenting. Yeah. And, yeah. Like, you almost can't help get, get pissed when you're on a desert island, can you? So... He's like, I'm not going to make beer. Instead, I'm going to focus on how to deal with these cannibals. Because it's one or the other. You only have the bandwidth for one. Yeah. So he's like, oh, maybe I'll shoot them from a special hiding place. Or blow them up. And we get all this cool talk about muskets and things and how he's going to do it. I mean, he could always try boring them to death. That might work. Yeah, that would be pretty good. Yeah. (laughs) Um, 
he really is like, ooh, I'm going I'm to blow their brains out. I'm so looking forward to it. He really works himself up into a fury, doesn't he? All in a lava. He gets a little serial killery yes, here. Does, yes. I, was, I was a little surprised. Yeah, all that barley. Um, <laughs> oh, no, I was trying not uh, to make that sorry. joke. But then he's like, <laughs> with cooler and calmer thoughts, I began to consider what it was I was going to engage in. So he's like, mm, maybe I shouldn't murder these guys. Like, who am I to murder them? You know, how do I know what God himself judges in this particular case? These people don't even know what they're doing is wrong. You know, he has his Michel de Montaigne moment, you know. Michel de Montaigne, for those who don't know, was a philosopher around this time. He's sort of an essayist. And Daniel's obsessed with him. And he wrote an essay on cannibals where he's basically like, hey, who am I to judge? Yeah, exactly. You all do yeah. your own rituals. Yeah. But we I'm... kill people and we don't even eat them. Maybe that's wasteful. <laughs> he says that, doesn't he? But I was planning on, until I saw that you wrote this in the script, I was planning on bringing in a little scrap of paper. So when you inevitably brought up Montaigne, which I knew you would, I could just whip it out and go, ha ha, you're I... predictable. I was surprised though, because everyone always talks about like John Locke and Adam Smith about Robinson Crusoe, you know, improving mm-hmm. the land. By doing that, you own it, you know. Yeah. Labor processes and stuff but then there's this kind of weird moment of pluralism that you don't expect so yeah this is what he says they think it no more a crime to kill a captive taken in war than we do to kill an ox nor to eat human flesh than we do to eat mutton plenty of Christians put whole troops of men to the sword you know whatever but I kind of thought this is what my little thought was Mm -hmm. if it's okay for cannibals to eat people because they don't know any better Surely it's okay for him to kill cannibals for thinking it's wrong to be a cannibal because he doesn't know any better. Unless he's giving himself the epistemic privilege of an unreconstructed anthropologist. You know, that's what I think is happening. I think it, this is actually an imperialist act. The true, the true egalitarian would kill the cannibals. That's what I wrote too. Yeah. Next. <laughs> The cannibals start encroaching on his side of the island, right? He's observing them. They, they start edging closer and closer. So Crusoe gets furious at this, and it puts him, quote, in the murdering humor. Yeah. He's been there now 23 years, and he finally, finally has a plan to kill the cannibals. I mean, I guess he wasted all of his brain power figuring out how to fence his f***ing goats in. Hmm. Okay. It's harder than it looks. <laughs> of the two of us... Who has actually owned goats? You can't own a goat. (laughs) (laughs) So Crusoe has plenty of guns and ammunition, but he's like, I'm only one dude. I can't kill all of the cannibals by myself. So his best bet is to manage to free one of the prisoners that the cannibals bring over to the island, and then they can like team up and fight off the cannibals together. So he bides his time, he watches, and then one day a group of cannibals bring two victims to the island, and one of them, they just hack to bits, they kill and start eating him right away. The the second victim sort of nopes out of there and runs down the beach. And only three of the cannibals break off from the feast to pursue him. They're like, you know, oh, we'll go catch, you know, the, the second course. We don't want Dennis to get cold. Please, guys, you eat up. So this is when Crusoe sees his chance. He runs to help, and it is a motherfucking melee. He <laughs> shoots and stabs three of the cannibals, and he just, like, you know, wails on him, he, and the guy is safe. It's a good bit. It's a bit of a river. I can't remember what happened. That's the bit you remember? But they were, like, jumping over rivers, and then he, like, jumps over it, and one of the cannibals is like, whoa, no, I can't do it. You know, it's like when they're jumping on rooftops in New York. It goes a bit like that. The newly saved prisoner, he's a little bit nervous at first by being approached by this incredibly weird-looking hairy white man wearing goat-leg pants. 
So this is what Robinson says when he approaches the rescued man. I beckoned him to come to me and gave him all the signs of encouragement that I could think of. And then, when he does come, he kneels down every 10 or 12 steps in token of acknowledgement for my saving his life. And then he, what he does is he forces, oh, he's made me do it, you know, my lud. He, he forces Robinson into a ritual where he lies on the ground and takes Robinson's foot, sets it on his head. This, it seems, was in token of swearing to be my slave forever. That's what you assume, isn't it? Right? But, so, what's that all about? It's like a real fantasy of imperialism, isn't it? Well, I read a really interesting article about this, about that this was the time in history when sign language got invented. Oh, wow. And sign language was used quite frequently in sort of imperialist settings to help yeah, communicate when translation wasn't an option. So, uh, somebody had a really interesting, like disability studies but make it weird and imperialist That's and cool. I, I thought that was neat like how you can be gay but also a slaver no of course you can be gay and a slaver but it's not you a don't, queer reading you, you don't oh, get the it, it is it did it is a queer reading you just don't deserve my sting oh, okay i will not celebrate that yeah long story short there's this weird ritual where this saved guy kneels at Crusoe's feet in gratitude, and Crusoe's like, well, I guess that's that's a sign I guess of, I own you. I guess I own you now. So Crusoe then finally gets a really good look at the guy that he saved, and he notices, quote, he was a comely, handsome fellow, perfectly well-made, with straight, strong limbs, not too large, tall and well-shaped, and, as I reckon, about 26 years of age. Queer reading, hooray! Except no, because you're a goddamn slaver. Love has found its way into stranger <laughs> situations, you never know. He does wine and dining, doesn't he? <laughs> you got your queer reading in my racism. Yeah. You got your. Yeah. So he's, he talks about how happy he is that despite this, this guy never having been exposed to white Europeans before, he at least has some, you know, appropriately attractive European characteristics. So his skin is the right level of tawny, not too dark. His hair is the right level of curly, not mm. too woolly. He has the facial features that are attractive in All Europe. All the sweetness and softness of an European in his countenance. That's in Orinoco. Yeah. For Ben, she says the same thing, doesn't she? The, oh, yeah. He's indigenous, but has a European heart. Yeah, well, I would hope he would have a European heart pickled in a jar on his desk. Crusoe decides to name the man. Not to ask him his name, but to name him. And he names him Friday, the day that he was saved. So if you guys have ever heard the phrase like, oh, that's my man Friday or his girl Friday or whatever, that's where this comes from. It comes from this book. Crusoe invites Friday home with him. He's like, oh, welcome to my trash palace. It's got a shelf. And he wines and dines the guy a bit. He begins to teach Friday English. Of course, Crusoe never learns a single word of Friday's language. And he eventually teaches him that cannibalism is bad. And also, this is what a gun is, and this is how to use it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so they do a sort of dope training montage before the cannibals come back. But we cut that montage short because we have to teach Friday, of course, about God and England. And this part is not only insufferably boring and sort of cult brainwashy, it's actually pretty depressing to read. It's a funny bit, though, isn't it? Because there's that bit where he explains the devil and Friday's like, well, if God's all-powerful, why would he have the devil? And Crusoe's like... I'm not a theologian, I just know, I mean, I'm more passionate than I am, and I am thoughtful, so I like that Robinson has to admit that he doesn't really understand what he's explaining. One day, more cannibals approach the island. Good. I cannot wait for his ass to get reverse colonized. 
You get him. You get his ass. So, Friday and Robinson prepare for battle. Friday says, me die when you bid die, master. So, don't know what that's about. Why didn't Robinson teach him to talk properly? Or did he teach him to talk like that? Because that's real. We thought he was taught like... Oh, that's uh, fucked up, Daniel. Yeah, sicko. You're my man, Friday. Why do you never say you'll die whenever I tell you to? Um... Disloyalty. I didn't he taught me good enough English. Um, <laughs> so... Before the fight, Robinson notices that one of the cannibals' prisoners is a European. <gasps> no! I know, that's, it's horrible, isn't it? So that gives the mission extra incentive. Oh, Crusoe, activate! Yeah. <laughs> it's like that, isn't it? We get this kind of action sequence, the pair of Friday and Crusoe, they will like, ambush the cannibals, kill a bunch. The rest are in, well, I don't want to mince words here, the rest are in a, quote, dreadful consternation. Watch your mouth. Sorry. Uh, and Friday, he's really good at shooting. Because, you know, he's like a cool native type. Uh, <laughs> he and Robinson finish off the rest. Uh, Robinson gives us a little kind of account of their various kills and it adds up to 21 in all. It's quite, he's like, I killed two in the bush, and I killed one in the hand, and, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. It really does read like somebody claiming receipts. Yeah, it's, yeah, it is like that, yeah. They rescued these two prisoners, the European, which who was a Spaniard, and also another man who, Dickensian coincidence alert, it's Friday's dad. My island was now peopled, Robinson tells us. And he's like, I'm the absolute lord and lawgiver. He's a bit weirded out by having a pagan Friday's dad and an evil papist, the Spaniard, on the island. But he's like, I will allow liberty of conscience throughout my dominions. Not for Friday, you wouldn't. He uh, needs his boyfriend to, you know, for their civil partnership. How will they raise the children? Happy. Yeah, you're right, yeah. <laughs> he, so he, he sends the Spaniard off to find, because the Spaniard's like, oh, there are 16 of my kind on the different island. So he sends them off to go and find them to help populate the island, all these blokes. Uh, <laughs> and Queer reading already. Yes, yeah, finally. So, and they're all like, yeah, we're all going to work together on escaping the island. One day, more stuff happens. In the meantime, another ship comes. Why is this place party central? It's like yeah. He's been there 24 years. Yeah, suddenly everybody's turning up. Robinson works out that it's an English ship and that something a bit fishy's going on. So, not unlike the cannibals, Friday notes, and a little ironic aperçu on Friday's part, no doubt, a little bit post-colonial bit, uh, the crew are leading some of their fellow shipmates onto the beach and they look like they're going to kill them. Robinson's like, well, they won't eat them. That's the difference, Friday. I just want to point out that this is a plot hole. There is absolutely no reason, when we find out what's happening with these sailors on the English ship and why they're rowing over there, there is absolutely no reason they could not handle all their business on the ship itself. Oh, it's silly. Like, they, they do not have to come to the no, island. there's loads of silly shit like that, though. I just, this, I don't know why this was the final fucking straw for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. These guys, they come on the beach, they've got prisoners, they look like they're going to kill them, they're not going to eat them, that makes all the difference. At the hottest point of the day, the kind of jailers of these men, they go into the forest for a bit of a siesta and Robinson comes and rescues them. Turns out that these men, you know, one of them is the captain of the ship and there's been a mutiny and, you know, all the loyal sailors have been imprisoned and, you know, Robinson's here to rescue them. Robinson's like, oh, if I can help you subdue the mutineers, you'll be able to give me a lift back home. There's this whole bit, I kind of, this is where I lost interest, actually. There's a whole bit where Robinson, you know, uses all his island smarts to beat the mutineers. He, like, you know, makes a ghost appear out of a tunnel and all the mutineers are like, <laughs> you know, like, terrifying. He does home alone booby traps. Yeah, there's all and... crazy stuff like that. And then he's like, ha-ha, 
fun. Like shoots fireworks off and and there it's like a Scooby Doo hallway where they're running yeah. back and forth. Really he's chasing yeah. them. Yeah. Finally, I know why I built that hallway. Um, <laughs> yeah, he kills the ringleader. I started losing interest. Some of the mutineers repent, and Robinson's like, "I spare you." Now I own you. Yes, that's the rule of my island. Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, you can live here and maintain my dominions. Can we just talk about how, you know, before he defeats the mutineers, when he comes up to rescue the prisoners, they mistake Crusoe for an angel? Can we just think about how this man looks after 23 years on an island? Is he like, do they mean like one of those fucked up biblical angels that has like a thousand eyes and just screams? Yes, yeah. <laughs> Okay, Daniel, we are almost to the end. Yes, please. Let's finish this crime. Yes. So, after we find out 28 years, two months, and 19 days... Measuring with that. I was going to say, that's how long it took us yeah. to recap this. Crusoe is finally rescued. So he's defeated the mutineers. The legitimate captain is restored to his ship. He's like, I'll give you a lift home. And... Happily, he saved all that money from those shipwrecks that he got. You know, he needs his little nest egg back in England. So hey. that's me told. That's my mouth shut. And you know what? Friday is going to come with him back to England. So Crusoe, he makes the whole voyage home. He goes back up to Yorkshire, where his parents have since died. You know, it's 30 years on. He has few relatives left. He doesn't know anyone. He doesn't really know what to do with himself anymore. He's like, wow, Harrogate or wherever the fuck I am is swell and all, but I think, I think I'm going to go to Portugal yeah, and, funny, yeah. and get word about my Brazilian plantation I left back in Act 1. Daniel, are you shitting me right now? Am I being shot? He's going to risk another ship voyage. I don't know. So it turns out, luckily for Crusoe, that his Brazilian plantation has actually been managed wonderfully in his 30-year absence, and he's now super rich because of it. Hooray. And everyone is really honest and fair about giving the money back to Crusoe. It's, it's like they're the stewards of Gondor and the king has returned. Oh, Piss wow. off. Yes. I, I'd be like, no, I ran this place for 30 years. It's mine. Quote, I was now master all of a sudden of above 5,000 pounds sterling in money and had an estate in the Brazils of above 1,000 pounds a year. All right. I'm... <sighs> oh, it did, um... Time for the measuring words. You look so sleepy. Yeah. So, if you want to see... Now I've gone on the, the new the new measuring words, the new fun hermeneutic ones and things. Going back to the old one is, is dry. But this is a dry book. 5,000 pounds in 1688, what's that now? There are four options. Oh, put a little Tabasco in it, come on. <laughs> real wage, or real wealth value of that income or wealth, 956,500 pounds. That's pretty good. So, the labour earnings of that income or wealth, so this is like, you know, the kind of, compared to the average wage back then, or now I should say, 12,240,000 pounds. That's pretty good. Pretty nice. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say no to earning that. Relative income value of that income or wealth, £17,250,000, so that's including, like, inheritance. So finally, this is relative output, we all love it, this is your clout within the economy, this is how the money works. The relative output value of that income or wealth, £185,600,000. Robinson is a very rich man. I just find this really hilarious because he's only been in England for a month and he already can't stand it. He, he's like the Liz Truss of repatriation. <laughs> Too oh, soon. You laughed, but it hurt yeah, you a little. Yeah. Now he's in Portugal and he's got this money. He's like, ooh, I don't think I should make a return trip to England. It's dangerous, ain't it? So I'll go overland. I, I mean, he pulls a Forrest Gump and he basically walks 
from Portugal up to like the top of France. I mean, he realizes he's going to have to get on a boat at some point, right? We're not going to get wrecked on Guernsey. You don't know that. He got wrecked in Great Yarmouth. So, yeah, we get this weird, unnecessary final sequence where they cross the Pyrenees. And I really, I bottom line this in your parlance, but you didn't think that was good enough. You needed a bit more detail. They get they cross the Pyrenees. There's all these wolves. Friday fights them. I was fascinated with this bit because it's it's literally in the last like two pages. Mm. All of a sudden, we're having multiple like wildlife action scenes. What is happening? So th- there's a very strange bit where he talks about fighting a kind of quote two-legged wolf, and I'm sitting there going, "Is this a fucking werewolf? Is this a it's the wolf that's lost two of its legs?" <laughs> so it's just dragging itself. Yeah, it's the not hard to fight. <laughs> Please kill me. I thought, "Is this a werewolf? Are we are we burying the lead here?" They also have adventures with a bear. I just worked out what it was. It's a guy that was stranded in the Pyrenees. And he's <laughs> that must be it. You're right. Instead yeah. of goat skin pants, we got some wolf skin pants yeah. going on. What's that freak? <laughs> oh, he had all raisins in his pockets. <laughs> they also have adventures with a bear. And then there's yet another wolf adventure where 300 of them surround Crusoe and Friday. And I wrote, Mother of Mercy, is this the end of Crusoe? (laughs) But no, he finally uses his big bomb plot that he had wanted to use on the cannibals, and instead he blows up a bunch of wolves. And I just thought, this plot at the 11th hour, my god. Yeah, didn't care for it. Yeah, so he settles down in England. He gets married! Yay! Then his wife dies. Oh. So, in 1694... Robinson, he does a bit of a Gulliver, doesn't he? And he decides to go sailing again. I would like to remind everyone that he tells us in the space of one paragraph that he gets married, has two sons and a daughter, and his wife dies. Can we please remember the space he is given to talking about his goats? And this is one paragraph. It's about the island, the book is, isn't it? Doesn't have to be. No. Uh, he briefly visits his old, old island you know, while he's on this voyage, and he sees that the shipwrecked Spaniards and English mutineers, they didn't really get on. Can't really bother to talk about what happened there. But generally, the island is doing quite well. Um, bountiful harvest of raisins. <laughs> he sends some women from Brazil, because you can do that, can't you? And he's like, I'm going to people my isle with little Robinsons or something like that. Anyway, he's like, stay tuned for more adventures. The end. <laughs> I expected nothing from this book, and I am still disappointed. When you and I were talking about this, when we were writing our script, you kind of approached this book with a sort of grave, solemn delight. I think that's how I'd I'd characterize your reaction to it. And I, on the other hand, was too busy typing in to WebMD, why am I dead inside? I give this book a lot of grief, mostly for comedy purposes, but I am going to cut it a little bit of slack because it's probably the first English language novel. I think he's already loads better with Mal Flanders. We can, we can afford him a little grace here considering nobody else was really doing this. So would you like some casting, Yes, I friend? would. Please. Um, okay, so I, I have actually two castings here because I wrote one when I was mad. Great. The one where I was angry is, okay... This story is going to be told through pictures in an L.L. Bean catalog. No, fuck you, I'm not having it, Daniel. I was just so mad. I was like, this doesn't get a film, it gets a couple of vignettes. That'd be pretty good, that. Like, a, <laughs> the book, book has a catalog. Like, Fight Club. Split the difference. You'd have that bit with Robinson looking oh. around his island and just has, like, coconut, Ooh. six guineas. 
I was thinking though, if, okay, if we want to make this into an actual cinematic thing, I think this would be a really good Robert Eggers movie. Uh, who did uh, yeah. The Witch and The Northman and The Lighthouse. So we could amp up the weirdness a lot, amp up the creepiness, the isolation, the sort of depictions of hard labor and grotesqueness, mm. right? And as Robinson... And the weird dreams. Yes, the, the, exactly. I mean, like, that that is absolutely his bread and butter, right? Mm. As Robinson Crusoe, for Daniel Defoe, I want Willem Dafoe. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now for our segment, Bad Goodreads Reviews. And I'm going to preface this right now by saying a lot of the criticisms on this book were really valid, so I had a hard time finding ridiculous ones. Big Fat Hurl, one, <laughs> st- one star. He does that, doesn't he? He does a big fat hurl. <laughs> Daniel Dafoe, more like Daniel my foe, one star. And the one that I like because... <laughs> I don't, I don't know why the person got so head up about this. He has more food on that island than I probably have in my entire house. Two stars. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, let's do some analysis. Yes, please. You know, there's a sequel to this, first of all, I will Two say. Two sequels. Yeah, oh, yeah. So the first sequel is called, quote, The Farther Adventures of Robinson Crusoe being the second and last part of his life and the strange and surprising accounts of his travels round three parts of the globe. In that one, he runs off with Friday again for 10 years. How old is he? Infinite. Yeah. He is infinite. And they, they go to Madagascar. They go to islands in Southeast Asia. And then Siberia, for some reason. And then the third novel is called Serious Reflections yeah. During the Life and Surprising Adventure of Robinson Crusoe. That sounds like my sort of jam. With his visions of the angelic world. Mm-hmm. And this one is Defoe even more cosplaying as Crusoe. And this is a little book of, like, Crusoe's essays about life and yeah, religion. Yeah, it's got all that philosophy and stuff, isn't that it? That is such, like, a marketing gimmicky thing. You live it by your toilet, is that what you're thinking? Like, when um, the meerkat from the Compare the Market advert released his autobiography. Is that a joke? No. When and how do you... And do was, you own it? No, I don't own it. Because you t- have a birthday coming. <laughs> <laughs> it was in 2009... That's very specific. I remember because I just started university. Okay. Did you buy it? No. Did you read? You flipped through it at no. the bookshop. No, God, no. Don't lie to me. No. I can't. It's called like My Simple's Life or something. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's pretty funny, isn't it? That's the thing. We all think it's trash, but it still makes oh, you laugh. Oh, no. After that all is, these years. That is a child joke. And I'm sitting here going, this is art. Defo was a wheeler dealer, though, wasn't mm-hmm. he? That's why he's churning out this, this stuff. The novel yeah. started as a kind of profane commercial bit of tat. You wanted to talk about this in terms of allegory. Is this a realist text? Is it an allegorical text? One of the things that often defines a novel is that sort of hint toward realism. But obviously there's a lot here that presents itself as like, it can be universalized Mm -hmm. very explicitly. Like Robinson's always talking about like, these are good lessons for you that you should follow, you know, (laughs) know, follow in my stead. And this is, I was wondering if the whole thing about being on an island is like a kind of moral or religious allegory and that we are meant to kind of think his tribulation is a kind of model for all of our own Christian betterment. But also the other thing, the other big one is the kind of bourgeois ideology. Like Robinson has this model for individualism. At the beginning of the 17th century, everyone's like, no man's an island. Or one man was like, no man is an island. (laughs) John Donne. By the end, you're just this one guy. You just work hard. You get stuff. Anyone you happen to meet, they're just objects to your... Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's that's the sort of bourgeois worldview. And that's where people associate this text with the kind of beginnings of the capitalist Mm -hmm. worldview or capitalist ideology. Um, Also, I just thought it was weird. Why did he make the bread? Like... That's not efficient, is it? For a guy to harvest cereals, invent his own way of grinding it, 
knead it all and everything, get, get harvest wild yeast, make bread. Bread is not efficient for a person by themselves to produce. You're better off foraging. So Maybe was, he just likes bread. Well, he does Daniel. just like bread. But I was thinking if that was a parody that by this early 18th century, we've got a very sophisticated division of labour. No one person could make bread in this way. And I feel like Defoe's almost saying, like, no, we are all mutually dependent. Robinson Crusoe's like, oh, I single-handedly developed the whole of civilization, but you wouldn't do that, and you wouldn't even need to do that. Well, first of all, he wanted bread on the island because, unlike you, bread doesn't ask stupid questions. Okay. Bread understands. Yeah, that's true. Secondly, I think that your, your comment, though, seriously, about ideas of civilization, I think that's a really important allegorical point, which I find really fascinating because as we go through the 18th century and well into the 19th century, it becomes a lot more prominent for people to get really obsessed about humanity and civilization and where did we come from and you know especially after darwin where it's like oh have we evolved mm. from animals people are really obsessed with like human evolution this is just before that but it's it's still before so i find it really interesting that he kind of stands in for the evolution of man he starts out as very sort of like you know hunter gatherer he he builds up slowly different industries agriculture you know animal husbandry to pottery making basket weaving like mm. you can see like the same trajectory but i just think considering especially in the late 19th century when they talk so much about human evolution and they get really obsessed with it and they tie it in with imperialism um and and these sort of sliding scales of civilization and what what does civilization mean this is anticipating a lot. I mean, I work in this area. This, yeah, no, is, know, this yeah. is my area of research. So I just, I found this very um, prescient. I, I keep thinking, I wonder if it's a parody, though, because there's that famous bit in Marxist Capital where he says, oh, economists are always using Robinson Crusoe to illustrate their ideas. You know, the economists are like, let's scale it down to one man. How would that work? And Marx is like, the economy wouldn't work with one man. That's the point. You, just, you don't need to have forms of exchange with just one guy eating raisins. Yeah, dummy. Yeah. Charles Lamb says this too, doesn't he? My fave, Charles Lamb. He says, Defoe sometimes reads almost like a kind of covered satire. It seems like he's taking the piss out of stuff more than he's actually doing it. And so Defoe was sometimes a satirist and sometimes got in trouble because people couldn't see that he was satirizing stuff. This would be a much better book if the satire were much, Sadly. much more apparent. Yeah. Like the bit with Friday sort of poking holes in Christian yeah. theology that Crusoe has spent however many years, you know, 30 years by this point, reading Bibles and thinking yeah. about... And, yeah, he just gets, he's, gets he's stumped got, immediately by it. stumped immediately. <laughs> also, I just remembered, and this ties into your thing about civilization, I read this uh, article that was saying that Robinson's early stages on the islands mirror the kind of Freudian psychosexual developmental stages. <laughs> like, there's the, the oral bit where he eats something, and then the, what, the anal Evil bit where bit. he goes into the cave, that was it. Or, yeah, shits himself silly from the turtle. Yeah, yeah. shit like that. Makes me think of the famous James Joyce reading of Crusoe. Let me just... The true symbol of the British conquest is Robinson Crusoe, who, cast away on a desert island, in his pocket, a knife and a pipe becomes an architect, a carpenter, a knife grinder, an astronomer, a baker, a shipwright, a potter, a saddler, a farmer, a tailor, an umbrella maker, and a clergyman. He is the true prototype of the British colonist, as Friday, the trusty savage who arrives on an unlucky day, is the symbol of the subject races. The whole Anglo-Saxon spirit is in Crusoe, the manly independence, the unconscious cruelty, the persistence, the slow yet efficient intelligence, the sexual <laughs> apathy, the practical, well-balanced religiousness, the calculating taciturnity. Whoever rereads this simple moving book in the light of subsequent history cannot help but fall under its prophetic spell. I think that the weird low-level libidinal drive <laughs> is good. I really like yeah. that. That's. I think that's one of the most balanced and all-encompassing reviews. Should we have some advice? Yes, please. 
Okay, so this book has a lot of biblical references. Oh, yes. They're very frequently found in older works, and they can help shed thematic light on what's going on. So a lot of times authors of this period sort of take for granted that we all know our Bible really well, but obviously a lot of us don't nowadays, so, you know, just, just look up those references and you could be like, oh, he's, you know, making some comparison to this. That might tell us what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And plus, that's just really impressive to put in an essay and be like, oh, well, they reference, you know, John thirty one nineteen, which clearly you can yeah. you can spin a lot of BS out of that. This is measure. This is what I said about the measuring worth hermeneutic edition, <laughs> isn't it? Just map anything you read onto a bit of the Bible, and you've already classic reading done for you. Would you like a clue? I would, although I disagree with this clue. We've hardly covered any dystopias on this. Pretty much just nineteen eighty four. We haven't really covered any apocalyptic texts on this show. Now you and I, Daniel, we teach on a, a module, don't we? I've been known to yes. Post-apocalyptic fiction. Been, we teach on a post-apocalyptic fiction module, and one thing we noticed is that most of the authors writing in this genre are very male, pale, and stale. Our next author is none of these things. See, there's my quibble. This author, not male and pale, very much stale. Because she's dead. Yeah. So, but two out of three ain't bad. Right, so please write into our email or tweet us at smfms underscore podcast. Please subscribe wherever you can because it does help us out. Like, we're, we're trying to get more visible here and, you know, that that does boost our profile. You know, see you for the next one. I hope you enjoyed it very much. I certainly enjoyed it. Maybe you did. If you didn't, let us know why not. Settle the d debate about male, pale and stale. Come up, come up with, what was the other thing I wanted people to come up with? Yeah, do the whole tobacco and rum test. You are literally reading a book while you're saying this. You can't even, you're phoning <laughs> it. I'm trying to find a funny quote. I, think, I bet there's a funny line. There are. It's not a funny book. It's not a, it's not a funny book. Oh. I folded some pages over, but they're not funny. Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart, and cover art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Centre for Critical Inquiry and to Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. And do not, I'm going to remind you, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Do not forget. Thank you.